Do please keep that incredible passage open. Let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for words that speak so powerfully of everything that you've done for us. And we pray that as we come to this passage tonight, you will open our eyes to see Jesus. You will open our hearts to respond to him. And you will take us to the foot of the cross in awe and wonder and worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Excuse me just a minute. This isn't quite designed at this moment for people who are short. Uh, A few years ago, I flew over the Grand Canyon in a helicopter. And as we approached the rim with the rather cheesy music of Top Gun playing in our ears... The pilot said, don't look through your camera lens. Why? Because the first glimpse you get of that vast canyon is unrepeatable. It will never be quite as breathtaking the next time you see it. And I can't help wondering if the picture of Jesus we have in these verses is a bit like that. The first time we see it and understand it, the truth is breathtaking. And yet over time, it begins to lose its impact. We begin to become immune to it. So tonight, as we open this passage in Isaiah, I invite you, whether you're reading it for the first time or the 101st, to come with fresh eyes and just to keep in the back of your mind the thought, Jesus did this for me. And as Jonathan said earlier, this passage is about Jesus. It describes God's servant. And if we look earlier in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah himself is called God's servant. In chapter 41, verses 8 to 9, Israel is the servant But this text speaks of so much more. As we read this passage tonight, we can see that Isaiah, writing 700 years before Jesus' birth, was speaking of God's perfect servant, Jesus. The gospel writers and the apostles were in no doubt that this passage refers to Jesus, We find Isaiah's words quoted directly seven times in the New Testament. They're alluded to at least 15 more times. You might remember that in the book of Acts, an Ethiopian official asks Philip, who is this passage in Isaiah about? And Philip goes on to explain the good news of Jesus and lead him to Christ. After the resurrection, Jesus explains to his disciples that the prophets wrote that the Christ will suffer. And that's Jesus saying effectively, Isaiah 53 is about me. You probably remember his words in Mark chapter 10. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. So how does this passage show us how Jesus fulfills the role of the servant? I think it might actually help us to answer that if we understand the structure of Hebrew poetry. Bear with me for a moment, if that sounds a bit technical. If we're writing a poem, we start at verse 1, don't we? And we work through in order until we get to verse 5. Hebrew poetry works much more like a sandwich. So if you imagine the first section there and the last section are like the bread in the sandwich, so they both work in parallel and both speak of the suffering and glory of the servant. And then if we move in another layer, if you want to call it the lettuce in the sandwich, that's Again, working in parallel, both those passages speak of the humiliation of the servant. But the heart of the poem, the really important bit, is that middle bit, verses 4 to 6 of chapter 53. They are what contain the heart of Isaiah's message. So tonight, I want to use that structure to help us understand how Jesus perfectly fulfills the role of the servant. And first of all, he serves God. If you look at our first verse, verse 13 of chapter 52, you'll see God himself is speaking, and he says, see, my servant will act wisely. But then we read about the way in which Jesus suffers And I suspect we're left asking the question, however, can that be wise? His mission involves the most appalling suffering. And if you look at verse 14, it tells us that the servant will be so disfigured that people will effectively look at him and say, is he human? Compare it, if you like, to the face behind the half-mask of the Phantom of the Opera. When that mask is is removed, you can hardly bear to look. What happens to Jesus will be beyond all human wisdom. But it will be wise because verse 13 actually carries the sense that it will be successful. Jesus does everything the Father requires. The result will be victory, but the path that leads to it is one of incredible suffering. And that picture of Jesus, the servant, perfectly serving God, is there too in the closing section of the passage, the one that works in parallel. So if you look at verse 10, it says... It was the Lord's will to crush him. Literally, it says God delighted to crush him. And that doesn't mean, as some people claim, that God's some kind of cosmic child abuser who delighted in watching his son suffering. God gave his son out of love for us. And God was there in Christ suffering on that cross. But God was delighted with the outcome. 
It was the fulfillment of his eternal plan to show his love and mercy to sinners like you and me. And Jesus participated in that plan voluntarily. He knew, as we sung earlier, that death wasn't the end. He was serving God in perfect obedience. And Jesus also serves with humility. Have a look at verses 1 to 3 of chapter 53. It fits Jesus' early life, doesn't it? His earthly beginnings were insignificant. His birth was unpromising, like a rooting, dry, parched ground, our passage tells us. There was nothing to make him stand out. He looked unimpressive. People despised him, rejected him. How could this mere man be the power of God, or if you use the words of verse 1, the arm of the Lord? And maybe that's where some of us are today. We see Jesus as a mere man, possibly even as a good man, but still as a man. We fail to recognize that he's also God. Those words, we esteemed him not, speak of counting up his value and deciding it amounts to nothing. Equivalent, if you like, to a pile of worthless currency. And verse 1 tells us that it is a difficult message to believe. We need God to reveal the truth to us. So if you're still not sure about Jesus, then ask him to help you understand. The corresponding section of the poem, verses 7 to 9, continues to speak of the humility of the servant. He suffered oppression or physical brutality at the hands of those he'd created. He had no rights or justice. He suffered not because he deserved it, but for us, the ones who rightly deserve God's judgment. And he died. Our passage tells us that he was cut off from the land of the living He was assigned a grave. We take the time to read the Gospels. The accuracy of Isaiah's words is undeniable. Jesus' trial was unfair. People brought false charges against him. They spat at him, struck him with their fists. Even the details of verse 9 fit Jesus' burial. He wasn't buried with wicked men, as you'd expect for someone who was crucified. Joseph of Arimathea took his body and placed it in the tomb meant for the rich. If you're questioning the reliability of the Christian message, then just take some time this week to study the sheer accuracy of Isaiah's words when we apply them to the life of Jesus. Throughout his life and death, Jesus saw himself as the humble servant. Picture him wrapping a towel round his waist, washing the disciples' dirty, dusty feet. But Jesus wasn't only a servant 
who served God. He came to earth and lived a humble life to serve you and me. And that takes us to the very heart of this passage, to verses 4 and 6. And those verses speak very clearly of Jesus and his suffering. He took up. He was pierced. He was crushed. But they also speak of us. Look again and see just how many times they use the words our, us, or we. Surely he took up our infirmities, carried our sorrows. We considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Surely he took up our infirmities, or our suffering. Verse 4 begins with that realization that Jesus became a servant for us to bring us back to God. He wasn't suffering because he deserved it. He was innocent. We're guilty. We're like sheep. Sheep stray because it's part of their nature. It's part and parcel of being a sheep. We once had a plum tree in our garden. It produced yellow plums, and they looked really good on the outside, until you tried to eat them, and they tasted really bitter. I had the brilliant idea of making them into jam. The jam was bitter. Andy tried making them into wine. The wine was bitter. We couldn't change their inner nature, however hard we tried. And we might look good on the outside, But we can't change our inner nature. It's inbuilt that we want to put ourselves first. We want what we want and not what God wants. And that's what sin is. And it's deliberate. Those words turned to his own way in verse 6 speak of a deliberate, willful choice. And because God's holy and he can't look on sin, we deserve his judgment. But Jesus suffered and died in our place. On that cross, he bore the weight of our sin. Verse 4 speaks of him taking up our infirmities. It's as if he's lifting a heavy burden from us and taking it upon himself. He was literally our substitute. In the Old Testament, animals were sacrificed as a sin offering. But if you think about it, an animal can never truly be a substitute for a human being. We sin 
because we want to. We deliberately choose to. A sacrificed animal has no choice in its fate. But Jesus deliberately chose the cross. Verse 7 tells us he was silent before those who condemned him. Why? Because he died in willing obedience. Jesus' completely submissive will took the punishment that our rebellious will deserves. And actually, if you think about it, only a human being can be a perfect substitute for a human being. The closing line of this section is much shorter than the closing line of any of the other sections. There's just five stark words there. The iniquity of us all. We're all equally guilty. But that incredible truth that Jesus has borne our sin is repeated again in the closing verses. Look at verse 10. God has made Jesus' life a guilt offering. In other words, it's an offering that sets us free from every kind of sin. Sin against our neighbour, sin against God. But unlike Old Testament guilt offerings, Jesus' sacrifice isn't the end. God will raise and exalt his servant. Weakness becomes strength. Defeat becomes victory. And those who stray as sheep can become children. Can you make those words of verses 4 to 6 your own confession of faith in Jesus, I wonder? Admitting your sin and accepting that Jesus died in your place can transform you, Isaiah says, into a child of God. So, what is our response to Isaiah's message? Jesus served God. He served with humility. And he served us. As we think of his total self-giving, surely our only response can be to give ourselves to the one who gave everything for us. And we too serve God. When you get home, have a look at the beginning of some of the New Testament letters. I wonder if you've ever noticed how many of the apostles begin by describing themselves as a servant of God or Jesus Christ or the gospel. Serving is an integral part of being a Christian. And we do it not out of duty, but as a loving response to Jesus' deep love for us. For Paul, part of being a servant was to tell the good news that Jesus has made forgiveness possible. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, it's of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he's using the message of Isaiah 53. We can be a servant of Jesus by making sure that we can explain that message clearly to others, by living the life we're called to live. But that isn't always easy. In his first letter, Peter quotes directly from Isaiah 53, and he reminds us that Christ suffered for you, 
leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. Standing up for Christ as his servant does involve standing against the crowd. I wonder what that might look like for you this week. And what are those little compromises that you're sometimes tempted to make? And how will you react if people respond antagonistically? Let's pray that God will guide us as we respond to those around us. Let's ask him to clothe us with Christ's servant-hearted humility. And we do serve with humility. The world encourages us, doesn't it, to put me first. There's an emphasis in school and in the workplace on targets. It encourages us to boast about what we've done or achieved. And Jesus reminds his disciples that those who wish to become great must become a servant. If you've helped with Holiday Club, you'll know that at the end of each day, we sit in a circle and we take turns to encourage each other by naming something good that you've seen someone else do. And a couple of years ago, we reached day four of Holiday Club and nobody had noticed anything I'd done. I remember sitting there thinking, what that child that I spent ages trying to really encourage. Didn't anyone notice? What about those really good ideas I had for teaching the Bible story to my small group? And then I felt that gentle nudge from God that said, why did you do those things? Did you do them because you wanted to look good? Or did you do them because you love me and you want to serve me? And like Jesus, we too serve others. In Philippians 2, Paul tells us to humbly consider others better than ourselves and to look to the interests of others. And he gives us a really vivid picture of Jesus as the humble servant who gave his life. Do we look for opportunities to serve others or serve ourselves? At work, do we share ideas with others or keep them to ourselves to make us look good? Faced with the choice of watching the tennis match on television today or phoning a friend who's going through a tough time, which do we choose? And those choices aren't always easy, are they? We need to pray that God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, will work in us and through us. We'll need to keep coming back to that image of Jesus, the suffering servant, and all he's done for us. And there will still be times when we get it wrong and need to come back to the cross and claim God's forgiveness. And if you're a bit like me, even when you get it right... There's sometimes that sense of pride in your own self-sacrifice that starts to creep in. 
The most important message of this passage, though, is that Jesus became a humble servant to serve our deepest need, our need for the forgiveness and mercy of a holy God. I wonder if you've accepted that he bore your sin. And if you have, has that truth begun to lose some of its wonder? If it has, then take some time this week to read the gospel accounts of Jesus hanging on a cross, bruised and beaten with a crown of thorns on his head. Or if you haven't read Tim Chester's book, The Beauty of the Cross, Try getting hold of a copy. You're welcome to borrow this one after the service if you want. It goes through this passage from Isaiah, verse by verse. Richard recommended it at the beginning of Lent, and and it is a Lent book, but actually its message is relevant at any time of year. Next time you take communion, spend some time meditating on Jesus' words. This is my body given for you. Let's not lose the breathtaking reality of all that Jesus has done for us. And so, as we finish, I invite you to join in with me in making Isaiah's words a personal expression of all that Jesus has done for you. I've put the words on the screen, but Let's just have a moment of silence before God, before we join in with them together. If you're able to, say those words with me. Surely Jesus took up my infirmities and carried my sorrows. Yet I considered Jesus stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But Jesus was pierced for my transgressions. Jesus was crushed for my iniquities. The punishment that brought me peace was upon Jesus, and by Jesus' wounds I am healed. I, like a sheep, have gone astray, I have turned to my own way, and the Lord has laid on Jesus my iniquity.